0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Into the Prey, breaching the chaos of the church with Nick and Mary Franks. This is our Sunday teaching session, City of Temples, a teaching series through the Book of 1 Corinthians. And normally on a Sunday that you're hearing this, if you're listening to it live or fresh, on a Thursday. Thursday, approximately 20 and a half months ago, on the 3rd of September 2020, I did the first episode of this study through the Book of 1 Corinthians. Corinthians that I entitled City of Temples. And here we are now, 59 episodes later and approaching not that far off two years later. We've come to the last few verses. And so it's it feels quite poignant, really, quite um, powerful. And I'll try and keep my mind in gear and on track to try and maybe allude in a minute to why it, it has all felt... Um, poignant, how, it, how the poignancy of this last episode today has uh, coincided, so to speak, with some other things. I just want to make an announcement here before I go into this final session. Um, and that is to say that the plan had been, as I've mentioned publicly in the last week or two, to finish this teaching episode, have a little break and then go straight into a new teaching series called Look at the Lamb, which would be an expository look at the Lamb as an expository study through the book of the Gospel of John. Now, just in the last couple of days, again, some of you, it's difficult to know who's listening and who listens to what, but some of you may know that I'm in the process, the early process of pulling a second book together, writing that, researching that, um, outlining that. At the minute, I haven't actually started the intense process of writing. I tend to work very well with intense writing. I've got quite a large capacity to to knuckle down and do that, and that's my intention over the next six months. And so as such, um, just in this early phase of pulling the manuscript together, I, it just has dawned on me I'm not going to have capacity to to start, look at the Lamb. And as much as I want to, as much as I would love just, to, just really to dive into it with a seamlessness from... City of Temples, there are aspects and highlights from the City of Temples through 1 Corinthians that have occurred to me as being directly relatable and applicable to the um, the subject of, of this second book, and I'm going to keep the details of that. I'd mentioned a potential uh, title for that, um, but I'll be saying more about that and how just how I feel the Lord has uh, started to clarify for me what to say. I didn't really ever want to say anything after writing Body Zero. And I I remember saying to Mary, it was a little bit like when I finished my English, I remember finishing my English literature degree back in 2002. And at that point saying, I never want to read another book again in my life, having to have gone through all this process of having to read certain books. And, you know, and it felt a bit like that. At the end of writing Body Zero, I didn't really ever want to write anything else and the caveat being unless i had something to say and of course i wouldn't have written body zero unless i had something to say by nature this might surprise some of you by nature i'm not uh, uh i'm not the kind of person that wants to be up front um if i've got something to say it's a different matter if i've got something to say then but as a as a young younger person as a child straight adolescent i would always have been quite Uh, background by preference i suppose it maybe is a little bit like that with with writing and so on um i've got nothing to say if i've got nothing to say then i'm not going to be writing i mean of course there's blogging and stuff like that which is a microcosm of that but when it comes to this these kind of more seminal pieces body zero was clearly my debut piece um And this second book, again, I'm I'm just trying to avoid saying too much about it prematurely, but you'll hear about it in in the next month or so. Um, I'm going to be doing um, a video about that for particularly to, um, to attract support for it. I don't mean just financially. I'm talking about a broader support for the process of being involved in something as it's happening. So if if that's of any interest, of course you don't need to wait for me to do that. Just drop me a line. I'm going to invite some response today. I I have done that sporadically over the last two years through this teaching series, um, and I've maybe not done that quite as much in recent months. But I'm going to put a a, quite a fine point on that today, which is to to invite feedback for those of you who have listened. I mean, I've lost count. There are thousands of down thousands of. People who have listened to these teaching, and I hear occasionally from folk, very, very occasionally, just to give you context, out of thousands, probably tens of thousands. Well, I haven't worked the stats out, but in 59 episodes, it will have gone into tens of thousands. Of those tens, just say 10,000, I've heard from probably less than 10 people. So that gives you a context of the kind of, communication that comes back to me. So I want to just say that as we'll feature in the, in this final episode today that the it's important to feedback. It's important to to drop us a line. You know, it's really important to do that and that's going to become increasingly important as as the years roll on as as the actual kind of location, the postcode for faithful Christian community and gathering might not always be certainly in the initial stages of connections with people might not always be in physical spaces in other words the role and place and god given gift i think of this kind of technology where we can connect without being in the same room or in the same village or in the same city or even in the same country you know so please please do keep that in mind that um being in touch is is i think a direct fruit of the kind of christian community that we're about to see now and indeed the focus of of a second book that i'll be writing so so please do be in touch and i'll, I'll qualify exactly what i mean by being in touch um in fact i'll just say now cuz i might forget one one of the things that we're about to see is the way that the the brothers and sisters in corinth refreshed one another and Paul names certain individuals specifically who had refreshed his spirit, and then he he went on to say, in other words, mention people like, make a point of people like that, honour people like that. And so I wanted to say that if you've listened to these episodes over the last nearly two years and you've been refreshed, I'm hoping that you've been refreshed. I'm hoping that your spirit has been refreshed. Then then please let me know, please. Please don't just listen to to the teachings over the last couple of years um and kind of it come to an end, which is what's happening right now and then I never know i you know i'm I'm not gonna hear from thousands of people or even hundreds, but it would be it'd be good to hear from a few more people who if you've tracked with the episodes and that kind of thing so um if you've been refreshed, if you've been encouraged, maybe if you've been provoked and a little of both. Please, please do be in touch. Okay, so today, this is the final episode. It's uh, poignant and maybe slightly sad. When you come to the end of something, it's been a mainstay of my working week, so to speak, ministry and so on in the last couple of years, and the kind of years that have spanned a significant period of history, both in world and church terms. But I'll go through, um, I'll go through my, uh, I, I've promised over the course of this that I'll go through the, the the kind of review of the whole book and I'll do something like that in, in brief at the end. I want to go through my, the kind of the verse from each chapter that has stayed with me or as I've reviewed it myself just today, the verse or the, or the passage that has stayed with me and then I'll give you, so that'll be. My top sixteen verses, one for each chapter, and then I'm going to give you my top three, and then I would say the the the, the most enduring memory for me, having um, read through, prayed through, studied through, and then spoken through this book. So I'll do that right at the end. Um, so it's been twenty months. Uh, it was the third of September, 2020, as I say, and so there's it's just. There's quite a lot to go through and it will always be the book that in years to come I'll remember as the book that I was working through, thinking, praying, speaking through in which in which the Holy Spirit radicalised me. And I, I can't say more than that at the minute. I'm wanting to, but I can't say any more at the minute um about this writing project that I'm I'm now knuckling down into more m- more intensely in a daily way. Um, but I want to. But suffice to say, this City of Temple series will will have will always will have an enduring place in that. So we're gonna go through verse seventeen to eighteen, and I know last week's session was a little bit more of a kind of smash and grab from some of the previous weeks verses that I hadn't really picked up or didn't have time to pick up enough. And so today it's a little bit like that. I want, to, I want to just pick up in verse 17 right through to the end. So let me just read that and then I'll go through my thoughts and conclude with uh, something by way of review and summary, um, as well as drawing attention to something that I think is going to be particularly important moving forwards. Father, I just pray for strength now to share my heart and mind with people listening. Lord, thank you for this way of communing and not only with each other but, Lord, with you, that there would be the genuineness of your table expressed in this remote digital connection where people are nourished, fed, refreshed, provoked, helped. Your body's built up in love. And I just pray for for your word to resound in the hearts of people listening. At whatever point I pray, we pray Maranatha, Lord, we pray above all things that you'd come. Lord, that that would sink more deeply into our hearts and minds individually and as a community, by the power of your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is 1 Corinthians 16, verses 17 to 21. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. All right, so just want to talk quickly here in passing about six windows into certain realities that I see here. And again, I think as particularly with reference to a couple of weeks ago where I've talked about the early church and um, so on, their windows, I think, into both the past and the and the future and in a way they're not only windows but they're mirrors into the present so windows into the past and into the future and a, and a mirror into the present window 1 insight into the church community and spiritual culture it's in Corinth and it's not. It's natural to, to, as we come to the end of something, to reflect back to the beginning. And as I say, I'll do that at this at the end of this episode today. And you'll remember at the very beginning, Paul addressing these divisions in the church. There's been this long drawn out focus, directly and indirectly, on the immaturity in this Corinthian church. And yet, throughout it all, and we'll see this in the very few words of the letter there is division and immaturity seasoned with both grace and love from the Apostle and from the Lord of the Apostle. But it's it's into the church, it's this kind of bittersweet reality in an ongoing way that there was both gross immaturity and profound benchmarks for us to to consider in light of the present and both the past and the future. So the wind at first window is a window into the church community and the spiritual culture. That was there, verse 17 and 18. I rejoice at the coming of these three men, Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, verse 18, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. There you go. So Paul is saying for these three, this, the, the, these three guys who had refreshed him. That's going back to what I was just saying a minute ago. If you know, I'm assuming that maybe some people have been listening to this who've not been refreshed. Maybe some people have been listening from from bad motives. I have no idea. This is part of the. This is part of what I was saying about the black hole. But I'm assuming that the vast majority of people have listened because they've been refreshed in not in their body not in their mind although that might have happened but in their spirit that you've been refreshed in your spirit please let me know give recognition to such people i'm not asking you to do a a post on social media drawing attention but let me know let me know that this has refreshed you and again that's that's an insight so into the into what's going on in corinth here throughout this city of temples And that these three individuals were worthy, according to Paul, of being mentioned by name. Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus, clearly important people of honour. Do you remember where Paul says in other parts of the New Testament about, I can't remember, I think it might have been, uh, was it Tychicus or someone like that, who'd refreshed Paul or who had nearly died and Paul's, command there similar to this here is to to honor men such as these I think that's I think that's really what's going on here is honor and there's a culture of honor, not only by the fact that people were being refreshed by one another, even in the absence of some of the Corinthians, as Paul said in verse seventeen there that there was others waiting in the wings, clearly these other chaps who weren't from Corinth. Give recognition to such people. What Paul's saying is honour. Honour is at the absolute centre of the kingdom of God. How much dishonour there are in faulty, immature Christian communities and in churches today. We know that Paul wasn't exempt from that as we trace back over the the previous months and and indeed years where Paul Paul suffered dishonour himself. In fact, we'll see at the end here just the way that Paul deals with some of that. But there's this culture of intense spiritual culture of honour and rejoicing in each other. You know, we see that in the Gospels, particularly the phrase I always chuckle at because it sounds very Yorkshire. Reclining at table. Reclining at table is that re- that kind of odd phrase in a way because we wouldn't say it quite like that, reclining at the table or whatever. But anyway, the, the, there was this rejoicing and reclining and relaxing and sitting at a table replete and enjoying conversation and company as whether the 12, the 13, or indeed as a reflection of Christian community and the early church more generally. There was a rejoicing. Look at that in, the first, in verse 17. I rejoice at the coming of these three men, these three amigos, because they've refreshed my spirit, give recognition, and these, so these aren't random relationships. This isn't a command for us to all to somehow be refreshed by everybody or to give recognition and honour to everybody. No, these are, I would call, spatially specific relationships. These, these were like, you know, the inner circle is often used in a negative way, particularly in church circles, because <laughs> in a sense circles aren't really um, the way it's supposed to be. Although if you think of Jesus, he had his 12... And then he had kind of circles out from that, didn't he? Larger The larger group of disciples and then, of course, the public as well. And in fact, if you read those chapters through John 5, 6, 7, that kind of thing, you know, where you see large groups of, of disciples abandoning Jesus. So this this whole thing of being refreshed is, I would say, is a rarity. It doesn't happen with any old Tom, Dick or Harriet, um, to be polit- politically correct, tongue-in-cheek. Um, it doesn't happen regularly, is what I'm saying, as a routine thing. They're, they're, they're kind of it's a it's a it's a specific relationship that brings refreshing. Perhaps if you're a pastor or a church leader or whatever, you might not you might not know that that refreshment that comes specifically from other brothers or sisters. I hope you do. But often, as and again, Paul Tripp, just a shout out to Paul Tripp, whose book A Dangerous Calling is well worth reading, particularly if you're involved in church leadership or pastoring. This tendency that there tends to be of church pastors, leaders, somehow needing to be separate from the body, you know, up front behind a pulpit with a mask on because it's not wise or it's not safe for for there to be transparency. And, you know, that's such a wrong a wrong understanding of how the church community is supposed to be and what leadership is supposed to be. You can't really wash the feet of the other if you're behind a pulpit with a mask on all the time, you know? So, so, so these are spatial, spatially specific relationships. I'm sure that Paul knew Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus, well, I'm sure that they had kind of conversations and times of prayer and so on that... That Paul wouldn't have had with others, you know, that kind of thing. So, re- refresh refreshment isn't, in one sense, a general, a generic thing. Although it can be, you can be refreshed by somebody on the street you've never met, can't you? And I think there's nothing more refreshing than seeing somebody come to faith. That's the most, the most refreshing thing. But just to ask, who do you re- who do you rejoice over? Like you're seeing Paul do here as he comes to the end of this letter. Who do you rejoice over? Who are you refreshed by? Who, re- who refreshes your spirit or whose spirit do you refresh? Maybe you're not conscious that you do that or aware that you, that you do that, but I'm sure you do. If your heart is set towards faithfulness, you certainly will. Or be intentional about refresh. Who could you refresh? How would you do that? Individually, for sure, is what I'm getting you to think about, but thinking more corporately, what does our average Sunday speak of? I mean, I think it's good to talk to God about this. This is such an important part of Christian community, and if you're not both experiencing the refresh refreshment at your spirit level, or refreshing others at that same way, and you'll sit and I'm going to try and help you to see just in a minute the circular way that this cyclical way that this works. If that isn't part of your Sunday experience, you know, I talked recently about Sunday syndrome and that kind of thing. Then just to say, you should talk. You really should. Talk to God about that. You really should pray about that. It's not some kind of utopian, unrealistic reality to think that you might refresh others' spirits and be refreshed in your spirit by others. This This is a core component of the Christian community that was and that will be again. So pray about that is what I'm saying. It's good, it's good to to bring these things, and I think often folk can languish in this sense of what's the ma- what's wrong with me, or why do I why don't I? F- I just I was reading in uh, Colossians three earlier this morning, and if you read Colossians three in the Amplified, it talks there in terms of keeping your mind set on the things that are above with Christ, where our hidden life in the resurrected Christ is and not on earthly things. And then Paul gave some examples of sin. He talked about sexual vice and. Um, idolatry, you know, and within that there was this thing of not thinking badly of others and it's like sexual immorality is often held up as being this heinous sin and of course it is heinous and there's a case in this book, 1 Corinthians 6 I think it is, where there's a specific, uh, there is a specific um, place given to sexual sin that is particularly bad, against sinning against one's own body for example, but in this passage in Colossians, it was suddenly, oh yeah, that's right, thinking wrong of a brother or sister or indeed anybody is a very serious thing that's, that's not that's not um reconcilable with the kingdom. so don't think badly of people if that's your normal rhythm because of Sunday syndrome or because of poor you know a Christian culture that that isn't like the, the way we're seeing Paul leading it here in Corinth or in the New Testament, don't just, don't settle for, for thinking badly. Don't become, don't allow, what does it say somewhere else about, a, you know, a root of bitterness growing up. You know, the way we think about others is massively important. Again, that very last verse of Psalm 19, that the words of my heart, and the, uh, the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God. He desires truth in the innermost being. Psalm 51, 6. So, so don't so don't think badly of people, pray to speak to speak to the Lord about it, ask him to show you how you can be in a context where you're refreshing the spirits of others and having your own spirit refreshed. Where does it say in Proverbs somewhere? sorry, this isn't in my notes. Um, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed or at the beginning of somewhere in Paul's next letter to the Corinthians somewhere again. Sorry, it's not in my notes. We're talking about the ministry of comfort, comforting others with the comfort we ourselves have received. Again, it's this cyclical process I'm trying to draw out here, whether it's to do with comfort or refreshment, whatever. This is at the heart of the church community culture in Corinth, despite the immaturity and division, which is quite an amazing thing, isn't it? Which I think ultimately can only be accounted for by the grace and mercy of God. So window one is into this church stroke Christian community and spiritual culture. Um, how does this compare with the average? And I've said that. Would you say there is a there is genuine affection? I've said that as well. So genuine rejoicing. This is this is such an, an odd thing to us, isn't it? Do we rejoice over each other? I mean, I, I'm certainly struck by the the jolting oddness of that. Rejoicing in the Lord, of course, but rejoicing in each other, you know, there's a litmus test here. Do you think this is the same as getting to know each other, which tends to be the best we can hope for? Most of the time we don't even get that at church. We don't really get beyond base one of truly getting to know somebody, i.e. outside of an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, outside of a Sunday best. Do you get to know somebody kicking back in their slacks on a Friday night when they're at the end of themselves, because their kids have been playing up or because they've lost their job or because they haven't got enough money to, to end meet me ends what's the, what's the frame? to help ends meet um, you know do, do we think this this rejoicing in each other is the same as what goes on, on a Sunday is what I'm saying window two into the uh, insight into the gifts and fruit of the Holy Spirit this this refreshing that I'm talking about ultimately, I think we should see and understand that as being a work of the Holy Spirit. Paul is giving recognition to this, these three men. I could refer to Amy Skelton, our friend who'd recently become a Christian, delivered from drinking alcohol, disruption of a homosexual family, holiness being the new standard as a flag flying over her life. How refreshing is that? Her own processing of X, Y and Z, and without going into it now, out of respect to Amy, but just to see her coming into a place of genuine faith is, 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 the, is the most refreshing thing. Well, one of the most refreshing things you can see. Peter and another friend of ours, a disabled man that we know from Cumbria, stuck in a wheelchair, and yet we have times with him, we have regular communications with him. It's refreshing, refreshing to have words from you, Peter, notes from you, letting me know how you're getting on, letting us know how you're getting on. Josh, a friend of mine, who leads a church in London, sent me a book a few months ago and some hot chocolate. Josh, I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to tell you, but I couldn't drink the hot chocolate because there was there were some ingredients in it that I couldn't have. But the thought was there. And Mary certainly enjoys the hot chocolate hot chocolate, so don't don't be it's not wasted. Um Josh sent me how refreshing is that? That someone had sent thought to send something. My parents Immensely refreshing, being able to be their children and for them to be our parents and elders spiritually as well. Be able to share in a sense of spiritual kindredness and rapport. What a wonderful thing. What a a thing to be treasured. What a thing of eternal significance. My beloved Mary, no one refreshes me like Mary. I don't need to go into all of it as my wife, but give recognition to such people, says Paul. They refresh my spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Friends, acquaintances, disciples, brothers and sisters, family members, wives. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Window three, into the heart of the Father. So it's a window into the church community, into the gifts and fruit of the Spirit. And three, into the heart of the Father. You know, look at that word there, rejoices. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and so on. Et al. It reminded me of Zephaniah 3.17, one of the most beautiful verses, in my opinion, in the whole Bible. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Isn't that beautiful? He will quiet you by his love. He won't quiet you by his discipline or his anger or his indignation or his holiness or his endless attributes. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Have you ever stopped to imagine the loud singing of God? That's the ESV. Listen to it, I can't resist. Listen to this in the amplified of this this verse, as you'll see, makes sense here as we think about what it what it means to rejoice, the oddness of rejoicing. It's not odd for us to rejoice over God in the Lord, and it's not odd for us to to think of his rejoicing over us, although arguably a bit more odd to our natures, that, that he would rejoice over us. But to rejoice with each other, in each other, I think is an odd thing for us. Maybe there's a clue in here. This is the amplified version of that same verse. The Lord your God is in the midst of you, a mighty one, a saviour. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in silent satisfaction. And in his love, he will be silent and make no mention of past sins or even recall them he will exult over you with singing what a stunning passage and that rejoicing there notice in that amplified rendering of that verse he will make no mention of past sins and even or even recall them and of course again in in thinking of colossians 3 you know forgive as the lord forgave you forgiveness doesn't always result in reconciliation it's important to say that and that might sound like a it's probably a quick throw, but I can't go into it now. But but re- forgiveness is always the standard, but reconciliation isn't always the standard. And within this, within these windows into this past early church mirror into our current present and into the future prophetically as we prepare for the Lord's return, and as we think about this this odd thing of rejoicing in each other, we think of the need to be able to meet at a heart level 50/50 if you can't meet somebody at least halfway you're not making no mention of past sins you know um, it's very easy to to say and even genuinely believe that you've done all you can to reconcile a relationship but if you've not if you've not come to a place of acknowledging that you need to meet people fifty in a in a in a kind of mutually reciprocal respectful way, then it's it's a pipe dream, I'm afraid. Having said that, I, I'm convinced that within the the kind of climax of this letter today, we see Paul appealing in love, even to the most heinous members of this community, some of whom were worthy of being ex excommunicated. We're about to see that. So it's a window in, into this the heart of the Father, particularly this this stunning verse in Zephaniah three. I think gives us a, an idea in and ultimately what it's going to be like in eternity as we are enabled, as it were, in perfection, in in full redemption and full sanctification and holiness to love like God loves. You know, we see that particularly in John seventeen, that priestly prayer around about verse twenty six. Where anyway, I don't need to go into that. Um, Philippians two, thinking of this notion of rejoicing, you know the, the the communal aspect of this church. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, Paul says, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. As uh, Philippians one twenty one, or in the Amplified, so what by whatever. Strengthening and consoling and encouraging in him by whatever persuasive incentive there is in love, by whatever participation in the Holy Spirit we share, and by whatever depth of affection and compassionate sympathy. Isn't that beautiful? So you've got that that word, the Hebrew word from the Zephaniah verse of rejoice. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you. That, that word is sus. Sue's, pronounced su's spelled S O W S, meaning to be bright, cheerful, glad or joyful. That's how God is over us. I think that's how we're supposed to be over each other. Or in the in the verse today, the Greek word in verse seventeen that I began earlier, I rejoice. That that's a that's a Greek word, obviously. Um, spelled chero. It's not it's not pronounced like that. It shows how little Greek I can read or speak, but car karero to be cheerful calmly happy or well off imagine that calmly happy rejoicing over your brothers and sisters calmly happy or well off again these are foreign thoughts to us i think such as the general poverty in our not not in all cases of course but in a lot of people's experience it is including our own and the and the, and the kind of longing that there is to realize this increasingly so it's a window into the heart of the Father, and and we know that that's how He is. He's bright, cheerful, glad, and joyful towards us. What a stunning thought! So window into into Jesus as the Builder of the Church. Um, one of the things you'll see in a minute as I do a quick review of this book is the emphasis of Paul in wanting to see the Church built up in love or in agape. Do you remember Matthew sixteen eighteen, where where Jesus says that self of Himself says that He's he'll build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in John 13, when Jesus said again, by all this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, or think of it in terms of rejoicing for one another. Again, much love, brother. Love you. Two minutes later, you've just abandoned them. That's not love. That's not not how Jesus loves. So it's a window into Jesus, the builder of the church. This is to him, Jesus, as the one who builds the church up in Agape, preparing his own bride for his own wedding day. And the relationship between our loving each other like this and that happening, Jesus working through us as the builder of the church. It's a cycle, isn't it? Rejoicing, rejoicing in those who refresh your spirit, making a point of telling them, and then them, in response, rejoicing and being refreshed. It's a cycle. You can see it there. Rejoice, refresh, rejoice, refresh, repeat. That's that's what we're seeing through this window, albeit dimly. I think we see, and I won't say much about this because I haven't got time, but I think we see a window into the Trinity. Again, thinking of the cyclical nature of this, the interdependence of it, the the, the honoring and submission of it. Um. Be subject to ones such as these we read last week, didn't we? In an earlier verse, and there is that there's a book I can recommend on this that I've just finished this week by F- Sinclair Ferguson. As a small caveat, uh, well, it's not small, it's significant to do with the cessationist pull that this comes from. But what so, so when this is a book on uh called The Trinitarian Devotion of John Owen, it's a it's a high sounding title but basically it's a look at the old english divine and pastor who had a particularly clear um understanding of the trinity and 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 our devotion being one of father son and, and holy spirit and i can recommend this book highly despite the fact that there you need to just know and understand that as Sinclair Ferguson writes about the Holy Spirit when it comes to that part of the book. It's from a cessationist point of view, which is a profound sadness to me and continues to be that the church is segmented in this way. I see that as the antithesis of the kingdom of God, which is both and, not either or. So sadly, um, Ferguson's book comes from that either or reality that we're currently living in, but I don't think we will be when Jesus comes. Anyway, that's a separate issue. But if you want to know what I mean by this Trinitarian devotion of John Owen, it's not a long book, it's a devotional book, and it would be a blessing to you, and that's what I think we're seeing here. The mystery of what we're seeing in the church here is something of that uh, mystery of the Trinity. I think, finally, just to say that it's a window into the continent-spanning home church network, if we just skip back to the verse, um, which verse is it? Um, talking of Aquila and Priscilla, we did have a separate podcast, Mary and I, on that recently to do with uh, feminism, egalitarianism, the Antichrist nature of that. And here we are, look, local church setting in Paul. Verse 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings. There's a continental-wide network of home churches here. Aquila and Priscilla, or Prissa as it is here, I've mentioned that about Priscilla and Prissa. Prissa was her name. Priscilla was effectively her nickname. It was like it would be like calling me Nikki. Her name was Prissa, and that's not necessarily the same in reverse for Aquila as a Jewish man. Anyway, together with the church in their house, there you go. They, they send you hearty greetings or salute salutations. But think of that word as saluting, a strong, a hearty salute in the Lord. So that was that's the kind of final window that I see. We see that this this network of across a continent, and of course, into uh, beyond just one continent. But at this point, is what we're saying. All right, let me just finish here with some focuses on the verses nineteen to twenty-two because, and I don't want to rush this so if we're longer here today. So be it. It's the final one. You give me some license to to go over. Grab yourself a coffee. But 19, verses 19 to 20, let me read them. The churches of Asia send you greetings so, or salute you. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in the house, send you hearty greetings or salute you much. In the Lord. And all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I don't know about you. I knew somebody who passed away recently. I don't know if anybody, any of you knew Gerald Coates. Um, I, was, I had a bit of time with Gerald. Over the years knew him uh, a little bit, and he used to kiss he used to do that. He had a value of kissing people on on the cheek, I think, or it might have even been on the lips, I'm not sure, but anyway, it was um I certainly didn't ever let him kiss me on the lips, but greet one another with a holy kiss, and it of course that's a, that's a Jewish man um, writing and being read by a British man. Or by most likely if you're listening, you're British. You might not be, you might be American or Australian or European or something. But the point I'm making is that there's a there's a transcendent cult, transcendent cultural value here. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Um I'm not really sure what to say about that really. Um except maybe we just need to be much less British about that. Sometimes um I can't honestly say that I ever Ever kissed another man in this way, but occasionally it feels appropriate to give a lady a kiss on the cheek, you know, as an affection, as an aff- in the Lord, you know that that doesn't happen to me regularly, but occasionally if Mary and I are with somebody, I was we were Mary and I were with a friend of ours in Edinburgh, and I remember that at the time, you know, you just it feels particularly if at a time of prayer, it just feels like a, a an affectionate um act of honour, actually, talking of honour and rejoicing in one another. So there was this there was this holy kiss, which let's be honest is a bit odd to us here in Britain, or perhaps the West generally. Um, verse 21, I Paul, write this greeting, or again salutation and salute, with my own hand. So it, we, we kind of come to this this kind of end of this little insight into the rhythms of the church. The rejoicing, the refreshing, the holy kissing the greeting, the sending greetings, the saluting, and so on. And then Paul kind of pulls his pen out, having dictated this letter and had it had it copied for him and so on, um, just on this point very, very quickly. I promised in recent um, weeks some content on textual criticism. In other words, how do we get the Bible that's in our hands, how reliable the manuscripts, how to understand the... the 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 kind of myths to do with that and the things that have been passed down, I think incredibly unhelpfully through evangelical mainstream, the stuff that we think is true as we say it, but actually it's not it's just making it it worse. when people come to us and say how how are you expecting to believe you'll repent now, Jesus loves you God repent now, he loves you, booklet when the Bibles that you've got are just you know, how are you supposed to answer that?" Is is a matter of what's called textual criticism, and I'm going to be doing some content on that. Just a by the by, because here we are imagining Paul pulling out his pen um, to sign off in his own hand, which is what he's saying he would have had this dictated, and that's how it would have come to the church by the hand of somebody else. Um, but Paul here, just at the end, he makes this point: I am writing this greeting with my own hand. Perhaps there was a defence there of, of the genuineness of his apostleship. Do you remember in chapter 4 where Paul alluded to um, we just know that his apostleship, his authority in other words, was under attack. Right, Let me. I'm rushing slightly because I'm going, I, this is going to be quite long anyway but I want to come to verse 22 because this comes to a, an important point to do with these two words, a Greek word and an Aramaic or perhaps even Chaldean. I'm not sure what the difference is to be honest but it's Anathema and Maranatha, and you'll have heard you'll hear us talk about Maranatha regularly. Anathema is, uh, I don't know, looking at the words, they're, they're very similar, but one's Greek and one's Aramaic. Anathema, let's read the verse. If anyone has no love for the Lord, this is verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That's that word, anathema. Our Lord come, exclamation mark. So, Anathema here is the, the Greek render, the Greek meaning of this is concretely excommunicated or cursed. Concretely, concretely excommunicated. Do you remember chapter five and the brother who was caught in uh, sexual immorality with his, his father's wife, which probably was in law, but I don't think it's categoric that there wasn't incest. We know that this culture was warped. It probably was like Amsterdam today on steroids. Uh, And I'm going to conclude with the dark demonic aspect of that in a minute. But the brother who was excommunicated there is where that that word pops up. But it also, it pops up. Sorry, that's not where that word comes, actually. That isn't the same word. But the principle of being excommunicated is there in chapter 5. Where that word does crop up, if you remember back in chapter chapter 12, do you remember this odd bit where... um, where Paul was talking about the Holy Spirit, and and says that, uh, that referred to a believer apparently who was saying Jesus is accursed, and then Paul said, "Um, you can't say that by the Holy Spirit. You can't say Jesus is accursed by the Holy Spirit." The implication, of course, there is, gosh, there's another couple of podcasts in that, but that if that was a believer, that believer hadn't received the Holy Spirit, and in that sense, um. Yeah, was was in was on thin ice, but that's that word. Jesus is accursed from chapter twelve verse three. That's the same word as here in chapter sixteen twenty two. The anathema. Um, thinking of that that person in chapter twelve, did they not love the Lord? You know, that's this. This is what this is going after him if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be anathema, let him be accursed, let him be concrete concretely excommunicated. It's a bizarre thought in a way, but I think it's it's an intriguing one because um I don't know what to do with it really, because if he was if the person in chapter twelve saying that was a believer, then I don't know. Jesus is a curse. You can't say that by the Holy Spirit. The implication being they're not filled with the Holy Spirit, or they've not received. Did that? Did not love the Lord Jesus? You know? Did they? Was it? Were they therefore not known by God? Anyway, this, I'm not going to go into all of that now. But <clears throat> I'm just making the point simply that that's where that word crops up, and there's stuff to to think about there. If you if you remember back to chapter eight, verse three, where Paul says, it, "But if anyone loves God, he is known by God." that's where i get that connecting thought that if if anyone loves god he is known by god therefore if anyone does not love god he is not known by god i think is a is sensible rational understanding of that and of course paul is saying if, if, if a brother or if someone doesn't have love for the Lord, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be concretely excommunicated. That doesn't sound to me like a redeemable situation. So I, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, maybe you have some thoughts. You might want to get back in touch. Coming to the word Maranatha, and that is how you say it, Maranatha. Um, you'll hear us say it quite a lot. This is where it comes from, and there's a very good reason why we say it a lot. We say it daily in some way or another. Uh, the two main ways of understanding this word, and again, it's an Aramaic word. In fact, just as a point of interest, there are two Aramaic words that Paul brought in to this New Testament letter. One was Maranatha, and the other one was the very final word of this book, Amen or Amin, from the from the Aramaic. It's an Aramaic word. So there are two Aramaic words there within the space of a few a few words that, as a Jewish messianic Jew, in effect, Paul brought into um, into this Greek world, into this Greek context. It's fascinating. By the way, there is some doubt as to whether that, that word, Amen, um, should be in the, the manuscript. D- David Pryor made reference to this. I, I scanned it just briefly earlier, and he'd said that something to the effect of that the best manuscripts don't have the word, Amen, the very final word, which would mean that, the actual book would finish with in Christ Jesus rather than Amen, which is, again, it's an intriguing thing relating to what I was just saying to do with textual criticism and so on and so forth. Why why would it be according to Pry that the best manuscripts don't have that in any way? But the word Maranatha, I think, again, it's not, ma- I used to say it Maranatha, it's Maranatha, and that's the Aramaic way of pronouncing that vowel sound, "Maran," "Atha," or Arthur i think it is maranatha 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 i don't know but it, the first part of it is maran atha and which is basically an exclamation of meaning our lord has come it's it's both our lord has come and also our lord come so it's it's a sense in which it's both and again spanning past present and future the lord's first coming our lord has come maran Arthur. Our Lord, come, please, please come again, Lord. It's interesting, isn't it, that this comes as as a after the crescendo of chapter fifteen, the resurrection, verse twenty, for, for indeed He has been raised. Um, this is the great crescendo of resurrection, the heartbeat of true Christian discipleship. Um. Spend a bit of time looking at this word yourself and trying to understand how it was used in the Christian culture in Corinth at that time. The Lord's first coming, firmly in mind, his resurrection, of course, and his coming again. It was the heartbeat. It was the expectation. Um, Maranatha is the opposite of anathema. So... Anathema being this concrete excommunication, no love for the Lord, or think of Matthew 24, the love of most will grow cold. Maranatha is an expression of eager longing and expectation. You know, if this was their eager longing and expectation two two and a bit thousand years ago, what on earth is going on for this to be virtually absent from the church today? For your notes coming up, I've got a couple of sentences that I'd love you just to write down and reflect upon as we finish this teaching series. So Mar Arthur is an expression, hence the exclamation mark. Don't miss that. Change in volume, change in tone, change in emotion intensity. Mar and Arthur, Mar and Arthur, Lord, come, when you see Ukrainian atrocity and Ru- Russian atrocity in Ukraine, or where you see stuff going on in other parts of the world or even in our own world, Mar and Arthur. Mara it's a it's a prophetic declaration of hope, both for the church and for the nations. So when you pray Mara, when I pray Mara and Arthur, I pray on multiple levels for myself, Lord, there is nothing that I want more in life than you for the church to pray that. But also to know that as their own eager expectation for the church's own deliverance and ultimate final redemption, raising of the dead at the the final trumpet, you know, for the church, for the redemption of the bride, but also evangelistically for the nations, Mar and Arthur. There's too much to go into here, but, you know, we know that there'll be a wailing in the nations when that moment comes. That's why it's been so refreshing to have ongoing uh, discipling Amy is because of her own raw sense of the weight and impending petrifying reality of of the eternal suffering in hell. So refreshing. Maranatha Arthur is our joining with the Holy Spirit. Sp- you know, in Revelation 22, 17, where the spirit and the Bride say, come, Lord Jesus, come. It's not the same word there as, as Maranatha. It's not the, quite the same word, but anyway, the joining with the Holy Spirit. If there's one thing that we're going to, you know, the Holy Spirit is saying this. The Spirit and the bride say, come. So this, is, this is really important as well. That Maranatha is a war, is also a warning of the impending Divine judgment. I found that earlier today. I was very interested to see that in a Strong's Concordance of this word, this Aramaic word. It's an impendi- a warning of the impending divine judgment. So, again, when you think and pray and speak out and declare and sing Maranatha, it's all of the above. It's expression of eager longing and expectation, prof- prophetic declaration of hope, joining with hope. But it's also an, a warning of the impending divine judgment. Now, see, this is this is in this is this is really important as I come to the end of this session, but also the end of this whole series. Try and track with me here. Mar and Arthur is a warning of the impending divine judgment. Think back to chapter four and verse five, where Paul writes, "Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart." Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, he will bring to light something fearful about that. Hebrews 10.31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This word, Maranatha, is also a warning of the impending divine judgment and for your notes again this is so important mar therefore maranatha for me as i've reflected and prayed about this and just drilled into it a bit more maranatha mar- fuses love sickness for the lord the opposite of anathema you know if anyone has no love for the lord etc fuses love sickness for the lord this is preparation for a literal bridegroom Sorry, of a literal bride for a literal bridegroom for a literal wedding supper. The doors will literally be closed, fusing lovesickness for the Lord with the gospel urgency that made Paul tremble as he came into Corinth for the very first time. I'll refer to that in a minute. Chapter 2, verse 2. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I would say that as well. Mar and Arthur resolves to know nothing bar Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The burden, you know, becoming all things to all men, as Paul went, I think it was chapter five, was it? Chapter nine, I can't remember. Burden that people would be saved. Mar and Arthur resolves to know nothing bar Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and this burden that people would be saved. Mar and Arthur becoming the heartbeat of your community, wherever in the world you're listening to me, whatever denomination, whether you're a leader of a church or simply somebody that goes to church, maybe you're on the verge or fringes, the community that you need to be in is where Mar and Arthur, as as not just a a word study, okay, not just as an interesting Aramaic word that can be pronounced in a number of different ways, but as the heartbeat, the, the spiritual reality the heartbeat of your community, you growing, growing in love for Jesus, and a growing burden for the lost. These are the two summary sentences that I want you to write down, if you can, and remember. Thinking of the Corinthian context of confu- of uh, immaturity and so on and so forth, the most immature, chaotic churches. I'm talking about today. The most immature chaotic churches are the ones in which these two emphases together are least. So the two emphases being, it, being growing in love for Jesus and a growing burden for the lost. Maranatha is a warning of the divine in- judgment to come as well as an eager expectation of his return. The most immature chaotic churches are the ones in which these two emphases together are least. And it's the together that's so so important. Love, sickness for Jesus, and a burden for the lost, a sense of the fear of the Lord, a sense of the fear of hell. Conversely, the most most mature and ordered churches today are the ones in which these two emphases together are most. So the most immature are whether these two emphases are least and so on and so forth. And to say this as well, that with that being true, and I believe with all my heart that, that what I've just said is true, the the fact the very fact that this word is is generally not it might be known as being a point of interest or in some cases a, a record label um from year from decades gone by or you know, the hashtag of some particular ministries, if this is not the bread and butter of your, your of your daily waking and going to bed there's something missing. There's something of apostolic faith missing. It's like never eating protein. It's like never, I would argue, even drinking water. It's, this is a, a non-negotiable, this is an absolute essential nutrient or ingredient for healthy apostolic faith. And it is, it is, it is largely absent from the church in the West. And for the church in the West, I want to say this as well that the word Mar and Arthur, or theology, eschatology, and theology around this word will be the precise territory that Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, perhaps even counterfeit. I want to read you an excerpt from a statement that I very, very, very sadly had to make a couple of years back with two. Brothers, to friends, um regarding a ministry that is globally known for this word Maranatha, and Arthur, and yet for whom there are as far as I know, and I would it, the fact that I'm not in any knowledge to the contrary would suggest nothing has changed. We had to make a statement that was very very sad and very difficult and and very spiritually charged, but let me just read this part of it. It's just maybe ten lines. This is uh two years ago. This statement is to, and actually this was a friend of mine who had written this and it's up on respective places, but this statement is to enlighten those who are tracking with our various ministries to see exactly what has occurred and to be open about our best efforts to try and address it. Please know that we have nothing to gain from this in the natural indeed. There has been little other than distress, lost sleep and agonizing within and among us. It is entirely possible that we will lose many members, stroke followers, stroke friends who read this as a circle. The wagons mentality rises up. Listen to this. This is what I'm saying here, okay, about this being, this Maranatha, this word Maranatha and everything around it, Christian community forming around it. What does the word mean? What does the word reflect of a spiritual reality? Listen to this. But as in the corporate world, the temptation to view entities as, quote, too big to fall sorry, too big to fail, quote, must not be permitted. Maranatha is the core cry of the Bride of Christ in these dark days. It is not a brand to be appropriated by anyone. This Maranatha cry being sullied is not something we, all Christians, can afford to overlook in this generation. And I I would just say, end of quote, I would just say that that, that is a reality, a spiritual truth and reality that the devil masquerades as what? He masquerades as an angel of light. And often the way that the enemy works is is he will target a reality that is or a truth and he will counterfeit. He will imitate. He will seek to contort and warp a truth and a reality so as to maximally damage the authentic real deal. And I would just say that the the word Mar and Arthur in the one hand is rare. The reality behind that in terms of Christian community is very rare. But in the cases where it does exist, I would say there is, and this, this is proven sadly to be true, it is also an, an area and a specific Google map location finder type thing where the enemy works, enemy activity that seeks to sully what God is doing and will do increasingly. And so we have to be aware that Maranatha is also the territory, the precise territory that Satan seeks to steal, kill and destroy, perhaps even counterfeit. To fin- finally come into land, and this is the promised review, I want to just give you uh, my highlights through each chapter in terms of just a very quick verse for each chapter and then give you my final conclusion. So let me just take um, City of Temples, my highlights, and these for each chapter this is a verse that shines brightly or most brightly in my mind as I've reflected through my uh, torn Bible pages. So chapter 1 and they're not all this long, so don't, be, don't worry. This is, not going to be, this is going to be as quick as I can. But I hope you, hope you enjoy this. I hope this is not something you endure and suffer as much as in, uh, fondly remember with me. So chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. what a wonderful encouragement from chapter 1 that God chooses the foolish things in the world to shame the wise the weak things to shame the wo- to, sh- to shame the strong the low and despised things as you and I guys we are not impressive we're not wise we're not strong we're weak and his power is made perfect in in that weakness chapter 2 for i decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, chapter three sixteen. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Chapter four verse two. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Chapter five eleven to thirteen. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or of greed, etc., etc. Chapter 6, verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Chapter 7, verses 29 to 31, for, for the sake of time, I'll, I'll remind you of that trio of verses that culminates with Paul saying for the, this present form, the present form of this world is passing away. Chapter 8, verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. I mentioned that earlier. Chapter 9, verse 16. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example that they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Chapter 11, verse 19. For there must be, there must be factions among you or divisions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognised or those who are in right standing with God may be recognised from those who are not. Chapter 12, verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Chapter 13, verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Chapter 14, verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up chapter 15 verse 20 but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep and then finally in our chapter today verse 24 that we just come to that I'll just read for us now verse 24 says my love Sorry, verse 23 and verse 24. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Immature Corinthians. Even you excommunicated brother for sleeping with your husband's, your father's wife. Even you, brother, who was wild enough to say Jesus be accursed. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Paul, my love be with you all, all of you brothers, all of you sisters, all of you. All of you being sanctified in this city of temples. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Those are the 16 chapters, the 16 verses. And then I said I'm going to give you my top three. And then I'm going to give you my most enduring verse linked to that. That big thought I just came up with a minute ago that the most immature, sorry, the most mature ordered churches are the ones in which these two emphases together are most, i.e., Mar and Arthur, is love sickness, growing in love for Jesus, and a growing burden for the lost. My top three verses would be in reverse order. Firstly, number three in chapter three, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's spirit dwells in you, city of temples? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Forget forget the drone shot skyline view of Corinth with all of its impressive temples of Apollo and Aphrodite and whoever else, shrine prostitute temples, dark demonic, stinking, filthy places of profound demonic power punctuating the city's skyline, but also punctuating the rhythms, the spiritual rhythms of not only, not only of the city of Corinth, but if you remember back to the very first chapter of, which I'm now flicking to, chapter 1. Do you remember the opening, verse 2 in chapter 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth. The church is in Corinth. Corinth wasn't supposed to be in the church. And yet here at the beginning, we see that. We see the skyline, these demonic meccas infiltrating the church. Chapter three, sixteen. again, this is my third top three. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? I'm going to just conclude in my, my conclusion in a minute about that. Secondly, number two, 11, chapter 11, verse 19. This is an enduring top three memory. Formative shaping. There must be factions. There must be divisions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognised. Oh, how we need to recognise the genuine from the fake today, the counterfeit. All cosied up with one another in the same buildings, the same denominations, the same conferences. Forget it, guys. Paul says there must be factions. You Corinthians... When, it, when you met together in chapter 11, it was worse than if you didn't meet together. And the, and the thing that you think is the Lord's Supper, let me tell you, is not the Lord's Supper. You cannot eat of the table of demons and the table of the Lord. And finally, number one, the most enduring memory, and I think for me the takeaway, tattooed onto my mind is chapter 2, verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Forget, in a sense, forget the crescendo of chapter 15. Paul decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's a reason why that doesn't reference the resurrection there. And my prayer for those of you particularly who have listened to all of these 59 episodes is that you would also, along with me, decide to know nothing, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in the UK or in the West, decide to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So my conclusion of this series is just that, is that as I finish this now and go into an intense period of writing for this book, this will always be the book that I think back to working through on this podcast as being the book where I where I became radicalised as a disciple. I can't say more about that at the minute for, for obvious reasons, but that's the focus of this second book, the title of which will come out in due course. But the, the conclusion for me as I read back and think back and over these 59 episodes is that I always saw Corinth in my mind's eye as a as an elevated aerial photography shot from a drone of this, you know, and, and you can see old pictures now of the temples in Corinth or Ephesus or wherever it was in Greece or further afield, you know, where the the remnants, the remains of a temple. And it's all very kind of beautiful and picturesque and get a filter on it, put it on Instagram, you know, it's, it's kind of like it evokes romance. It evokes a sense of awe at, ancient history and everything that went with that but let me tell you when you see when and when i see that now in my mind's eye of the skyline i just see these these temples of demonic darkness powerful potent demonic darkness satan's activity activity rule and reign on the earth resulting in the kind of horrors that went, what went on, and I'm not just talking about. Imagine strolling past a brothel in, in Amsterdam. I'm talking about. There's even been. I mentioned this in one of the episodes. There was some reference to child sacrifice, some remains of you know, to Zeus, all that kind of stuff. There were all prime prostitution, homosexuality, promiscuity, incest. The worst, the worst. Nothing new under the sun, but the worst of humanity in the city that was known for this to corinthianize and that wasn't so much the corinthians as it was the demonic forces behind all of these temples so so that's that's what we see paul in chapter 2 in fear and trembling you know that's why that's why he decided to know nothing except jesus christ and him crucified among that kind of city that says something profound to me. That was the city in chapter 1. And then I've seen in, over the course of the last two years nearly uh, an increasing clarity and vision for chapter 3, verse 16, the third, the, f- the third verse there. First of the three in reverse order, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? What a contrast of the the punctuated skyline of these heinous filth pots. Do you remember the Hezekiah's words when he cleared the temple, getting rid of the filth? You have that by on one hand and then you have this these holy temples. The new covenant, the sealing of the hearts for the day of redemption, Ephesians one thirteen, of these new converts, these maturing Christians, these increasingly contagious Christians, these increasingly fruitful temples, mobile, itinerant, not quite sure what the word is, holy spirit-possessed temples, wandering Wandering, walking, maybe even running, shouting, lifting their voices, trembling for sure. But every day, resolving, every day deciding to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Imagine that. Imagine all of these mobile temples of the Holy Spirit wandering through all the nooks and crannies of this filthy city. Talk about being behind enemy lines and then gathering in the holiness of and privacy of home church, of churches in people's homes, where there was the kind of unity where one rejoiced over another, knowing that God the Father rejoices over us and that God even rejoices over himself within the Trinity. So a skyline of dark demonic temples compared with the burning holy huddles ...of these spirit-wrought temples? Do you not know, guys listening to me, that you are God's temple... ...and that God's spirit dwells in you? I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Father, I just want to commit this to you now... and ...as we've prayed and as we've talked and listened... ...and I ask you to radicalise every single one who has listened... Lord, I pray that there would be a filling, I pray that there would be an empowering, I pray that there would be something like the removal of scales from the eyes and the hearts and the minds of everybody, that there would be that same apostolic discovery of what it means to be a witness of the risen Christ. Lord, we thank you for chapter 15, verse 20, but Lord, I pray The chapter 2, verse 2, would be the, as it were, the thorn in people's sides, that place where your grace, the sufficiency of your grace for each of us, for however many days we've got left on this planet, becomes our daily testimony. And Lord, your sustaining work through all of the immaturity and all the division and all of the gross sin, the grace of of the Lord Jesus be with you and the apostolic leadership surely of the true shepherds of today that my love, Paul's love, would be with you all. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Lord, we pray in your precious name, Jesus, and we pray for the glorifying of your name, Father, the hallowing of your name, in the precious name of Jesus, crucified, resurrected and coming again. We pray, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. For those of you who'd be interested in continuing to study this book, I'll be producing a study guide based on this teaching series, City of Temples. Look out for that in due course. If you'd like to support the work that we're doing, if you'd like to be one of our patrons, you can do that. Just follow the links in the show notes and please do let us know any thoughts, comments, reflections throughout the last two years worth of teaching. God bless you.